Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Hey, Alyssa, have you ever come out of a race with a really bad sunburn? I sure have. My very first Kona, I'll never forget. It was awful. Well, I think I have a product for you. Zelio Sun Barrier SPF 45 is a zinc-based and water-resistant sunscreen. It's long-lasting, oil-free, and won't sting your eyes. I've used it, and it works great. I'll have to try it because I have heard that Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like Heather Jackson, Lindsay Corbin, Jesse Thomas, and Rachel McBride. Wait, did you forget someone? Oh, that's right. And our very own Haley Chura. Well, Zelio's products are made with high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest days, sweatiest training sessions, and toughest elements. They give athletes like us confidence and peace of mind to perform at our best without worrying about our skin or hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without are the Sun Barrier SPF 45, the Twix Chamois Cream, Swim and Sport Shower Products, and the Body Lotion. You can use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com to get 20% off. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for... Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. And I have to say, happy belated birthday, since this will be out on Thursday and we will be past your birthday. But since we're recording before your birthday, I also want to say happy almost birthday. Oh, thank you so much, Alyssa. I know we're in a little bit of a time warp here with our podcast recording to release date, but I'll be 34 when this podcast comes out. Another year older, made it pretty excited and I'm, I'm looking forward to a great year. 34 has been great to me so far for the past month and a week, but I did spend some time actually thinking today I could not remember for the life of me if I was 33 or 34, so I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing or if I'm just training too much and my brain's not working, but you know, I feel like I'm just only staying younger at 34, so it'll be a good year for you. Thanks. I know it is weird how like when you're young or very young, we're still kind of young, but when you're like in single digits, you like every birthday is so vivid and you're like, I could never imagine not knowing how old I am. And then when you get to like 
around our age. I do act. I'm like, okay, I was born in 85. <laughs> now it's 2019. Okay. 34. I have it right. So thank you. But thank you for the well wishes. And I'm glad that you, you have a month under your belt to let me know that it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's going to be all right. And do you have any special plans? Do you do a birthday workout? What do you have ready for you this week? So Alyssa, it's crazy because in past years I have, I've done some crazy things. I think last year I did the picnic where, you know, I rode my bike up with a group of friends to a mountain lake, swam across the lake, climbed the mountain, and then did it all in reverse. And this year, my birthday actually lands on basically an active recovery day. And I don't think Matthew, my coach even really realized it was my birthday. And he just had this on there. And to be perfectly honest, I'm so tired that I don't want to let him know. I want my birthday this year to be like, it's like all the food. <laughs> so I have an easy swim and then I'm going to hopefully have a special breakfast, a special lunch and a special dinner and maybe special dessert. <laughs> so that is what my birthday is going to be about this year rather than swim, bike, run overload. It's going to be like food and sleep overload. That sounds amazing and perfect. And, you know, I think I think there definitely was a time when like birthday workouts were a big thing for me, but now kind of, I think I'm, I'm like you where it's, it's okay if it's not because I'm putting in the work elsewhere, no matter what. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll spin that birthday day any way I can, I guess these days. Exactly. I know. I'm like, this is 34. <laughs> I want to sleep in. That's what I want to do. But how are you doing? How's Ironman training? Are you, are you as tired as me? <laughs> Here I am complaining and I'm just like 70.3 training has me like one foot in the grave. Ironman training is fine. I'm at that point where it's just, it's all going to be fine and it's all going to be okay. But if anything doesn't go according to plan, I have to like mentally take a deep breath, realize that I'm so tired. I'm not really thinking rationally and like, you don't need to cry over little things. It's all going to be fine. You probably just need food or a nap or something like that and like just get through it. So that's kind of where I am. But I have survived, I think, the worst of the heat. That was also taking a toll, I think, on any anyone who's been in a abnormally hot place lately. Which is like everywhere in the world yeah. except for here except in Bozeman. Except for where you are. <laughs> I mean, I almost wore arm warmers on my ride last weekend. It was so pleasant. Haley, I, I don't even remember what that feels like. And like, I just, every time you walk outside, it's an oven. I now know what it's like to work out in an oven all the time. And there's certain things you just, you can't avoid. Right. And so, but I did like, I guess keeping it as, as positive as I can and like things are still going okay. It's just hard, you know, and you just have to be make accommodation elsewhere to make up for the fact that like it's harder than normal like workouts would have been I guess so yeah I don't know Haley but the heat has finally broken and I am going up to Lake Placid this weekend so I think I'll have some nice upstate New York Adirondack weather to train in for a few days which I'm definitely looking forward to Oh, cool. So, uh, so you'll be, I do have athletes racing Ironman Lake Placid. I do. I have athletes racing. One of them is my boyfriend. And so he is racing and a couple other athletes that I coach are going to be up there. So I had planned, you know, like I love it up there. I know the course really well. It's like a very easy place to go and train. So I had scheduled that trip ahead of time and I can take Ramona, which is a bonus. And then now that the heat is here, it's just been like, 
the light at the end of the tunnel because I know I'll get a break and I know I'll get to like do some good work there and hopefully feel how it'll feel in Copenhagen where it's definitely not usually a thousand million degrees. So that'll be a good little break. Well, I think Placid this year is the pro men only on the professional side because the women, the pro women are racing at Ironman Canada in Whistler last year that that race will be in Whistler. So we actually will have live coverage on our Iron Women Facebook page. Ashley Wiles and special guest Jeff Simons will be handling that coverage. So everyone should check in with the Iron Women Facebook page. The interviews are happening this Friday and Saturday, and the race is happening on Sunday, and they will have live coverage of that race both on Facebook and on the Iron Women Instagram page. And Haley, I heard that Noon Hydration has given them some giveaways to be giving out. So that sounds extra exciting. So make sure you are following along and watching for those giveaways. And if you're planning to be in Whistler, then you might be wanting to track down Ashley and Jeff and say hi. And can I have some Noon Hydration? Maybe that'll be like the secret password. (laughs) That should be the secret password. I like that. (laughs) And then this week... We are actually, we have some mailbag questions, but we are holding off on answering them because we have another special treat for you. But if anyone does have questions for us, write into our mailbag. It is ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com and we will answer those questions in due time. We promise we'll get to them eventually. So thank you for those of you who have written in. And and if you have a question, ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And our special guest right now is Live Feisty's very own Sarah Gross. And she's coming on to talk to all of you and talk to me and Haley and answer some of our questions about the Outspoken Summit, which is happening in Tempe, Arizona, November 15th to 17th this year. And early bird registration is ending July 31st. So you might want to get your registration in. And so we're hoping that we can ask Sarah here a few of our questions and maybe you have these questions too. And then you can go ahead and register before that July 31st deadline. So hi, Sarah, welcome to iron women. Hi ladies. Thank you. It's been forever since I've been on this show. It's been over a year, right? Yeah. yeah I think so- you, last time you were on, you were talking about the inaugural outspoken summit. So we're super happy to have you back to talk about round two. So I will kick off the questions for you. I would love to know, you know, this is the second year of Outspoken Summit. So what is different this year? Like if someone went last year, can they expect it to be similar or is it going to be totally different or what's what's new? Okay, well, what's staying the same, can I say what's staying the same is that we're we're trying to create a a unique space where women can come together and men where anyone who's interested in gender equity in the sport can come together and can network. And just that really feel good vibe that happened last year. That's like the main thread that's really important to us. And we're hoping to create that space. But other than that, there's a lot of big changes that are going to make this whole thing way better. So last year we were in a hotel and this year we moved the venue to ASU so we have a much bigger space for our keynote speakers. Um, we we had to shut down registration early last year because we sold out sort of just as registration started to pick up, we sold out. So we had to, we knew we had to get a bigger space. So we're in a, a gymnasium for most of our big sessions and all the attendees will have access to like the 50 meter outdoor pool, all of the gym facilities at ASU. If anyone's ever been to Tempe for the Ironman and gone and used that, have, have you? I have. I, I 
Well, I don't, do they let you in the outdoor pool, the 50 meter mm. or the 50 meter pool? Like if you're just a regular person, I feel like you have to be like a special person to get into the ASU. The 50 actual, meter pool. Yeah. The 50 meter pool. Yeah. But the, the gym space is like super nice. That whole facility is really nice. Yeah. So if you come, you're a special person and you get to use the facilities anytime you want. And we created some extra time at lunchtime. So that's going to be great because people will be able to train better and more easily than last year and won't have to get up. I don't know if you remember, Haley, like we had to get up at the ass crack of dawn to go to the pool. So you can swim at like eight in the morning if you're someone who doesn't want to swim at six. But I know you're someone who wants to swim at six anyway. So (laughs) I was like, wait, what's the ass crack of dawn? That's like my favorite time of day. I've never heard it described that way. that is cool for, I mean, or if someone had a longer workout in, cause that is, you know, November 15th through 17th, you, you have some late November and December races. So people could definitely be training. And that sounds like there's enough time for them to get that in. For sure. And the weather's good. And so, and then we also have another venue for our evening receptions and we've just confirmed that we're having two like really great evening events. And it's a, it's kind of a converted industrial space. That's an incubator for startups in the fashion industry. So they, they support, it's a not-for-profit and they support a lot of like women run businesses in the fashion industry. So we really love like the synergy that our goals had with theirs. Um, so it's basically this amazing, like space that has big chandeliers cause they have a lot of fashion shows there, big chandeliers up and down this, like it's, it's really cool. So we're super excited to have evening events there. And then, okay, perhaps most importantly, the theme for this year is leading from the inside out. So we have, we're like effectively, um, hoping to create, to, to have a bunch of speakers, topics, breakout sessions, and not hoping we do have them, (laughs) um, who will talk about how to become a better leader, big issues in leadership and sport. Like we have a big lunchtime on Saturday. We have a speaker that's Dr. Rachel McKinnon. She's talking about gender and she's a trans athlete herself. And then we have a panel to discuss the issues around trans athletes and gender and sport. Uh, which is a really big topic that triathlon for some reason kind of ignores or has like trans policies hidden in the back pages of, you know, race websites and stuff. So we're hoping to address that directly. We have Sarah True who's doing the opening keynote and she is, I, I mean, I think she's one of the big leaders and voices in our sport right now. We have a woman, I now I just launched into like the speakers. <laughs> anyway, we have this woman I'm super excited about called Vaughn Spencer and she's an army colonel. I just want to get it right. She, um... I saw her. You just promoted her on the outspoken Instagram page today. So I was reading the profile on her. She seems like an incredibly impressive person. Oh my gosh. I can't believe we found her. I'm so excited about her. And so she was, she's the commander for the air forces installation and mission support center. And she's the first woman to be in that position. And the first African-American to be in that position. Um, so she's going to talk about like being the first person in a space, like the first person to do something or in a space, which I think is, um, really neat and needed. So yeah, basically the theme leading from the inside out is new. We're hoping to like provide people with opportunities to increase their leadership skills. And then the pre-summit sessions, oh my gosh, there's so much new this year. So we have two pre-summit sessions. They're full day long sessions. One is on inclusion and diversity. So it's like, if you, if you run an organization or if you're interested in how to create a more inclusive space anywhere in, in triathlon, in your business, in your life, then we have Lisa Ingerfield, who's my co-founder and Shauna Payne Gold, then this is their area of expertise. So they're doing a full day long session on that. And then Rachel Joyce and I are doing a kind of how to become a pro triathlete seminar. 
And that's again, a day long. We're covering all the business side, coaching, training, everything to do with pro athleticism and triathlon. And we're bringing in a number of different voices because we'll have people there. Right. So hopefully over the course of five hours, people will be able to hear from different, from all different people, um, from like people who own businesses saying exactly how to get good sponsorship, for example. So I think there'll be some really good information there. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say about this is the food. (laughs) So, so last year we were stuck with the hotel food and, you know, it was fine, but sometimes they underestimated how much athletic women were going to eat. And so this year we're, we're able to get outside caterers. We're choosing, we're hand choosing everything ourselves. So I'm kind of excited to have better, better food. Food is important. Okay. So great food, places and time to do training, amazing speakers, right? You're checking all the boxes, but I know that sometimes when I'm looking at something I want to go to, like a big barrier for myself is like having to go alone. Right. And it's like, how are you going to have, you know, if I know someone there maybe, but will they be my friend or like who, you know, am I going to work out with in the mornings? Like, how does all of that work there. And did you find last year, a lot of people kind of came as quote singles, you know, or do you have to kind of, do you encourage people to come in a group? Yeah, I was actually really, I was actually surprised how many people came as individuals last year. Like I met a lot of people who didn't, or who only knew people on social media or by name and hadn't really connected before. And so I think we managed to like, again, like I say, that's one of our big goals to try to create an inclusive and welcoming environment. Cause that's what we do. Um, so I think people manage to network well and like talk to each other. It's that kind of stuff's about the vibe, right? So I don't know if you find that Haley, but like, I really found everybody really came with a warm and welcoming feeling. Um, and that that really helped people to talk to each other, even if they didn't know each other. I would agree. I went, I guess, technically as a single last year and, I'm fairly good at at speaking to people and meeting people and that kind of things. But there's a little side of me that is a bit introverted and gets a little overwhelmed in those kind of crowded situations. And I would say it was so collaborative. And I think even before we, you know, were there, I feel like there were emails that were, you know, or maybe a Facebook page that was kind of circulated with some of the, the people who were attending the summit just so that we could connect and Uh, people were reaching out for carpools from the airport or carpools to the pool back when we had to carpool to the pool. So there was, I mean, there was a lot of, um, you know, I guess, yeah, like you said, networking between that. And I never had to like sit by myself at a table, (laughs) but, um, you know, that is kind of scary, but I think you put yourself out there and you get to like meet other people and you go to these, it's kind of like going to a race by yourself. You think, Oh, I might, I'm going to be all alone. And then you find out that everyone around you is just like you. And all of a sudden you're not alone at all. Like all these people are very like-minded. Everyone's there to learn. Everyone's there to meet people and you come away with, you know, a couple hundred more friends. Yeah. This is something we actively talk about in our meetings because Lisa herself, my co-founder is an introvert, you know? And so she's very sensitive about like, how are we going to include everybody, especially people who are introverts? So last year we kind of laughed because one of our solutions was drink tickets. <laughs> it's like, we're giving them free alcohol at the networking sessions, um, which is like, it is like just one small piece of a solution. But we also, last year we ran a session, Dana Platon, who runs Raina's, is it the Raina's space? 
Yes. With Rachel yeah. Joyce. With Rachel Joyce. Yeah. So she's a, a, a sort of an expert on leadership and, and that kind of. And so she basically did a little seminar right before our networking session last year around how to network. Um, and a lot of people went to that. And we got a lot of really good feedback about that. So it's like those little just those little kinds of details. Another thing we're doing this year is we're having on Sunday, we're having roundtable discussions. So that's a little different than a breakout session. So literally, you know, one of the leaders or presenters that we have there will be like plopped at a table. There'll be like lots of them and you rotate. So if you wanted to have a quieter conversation or you wanted to get that person to, to ask a question, but you didn't want to do it in the context of like 50 people in a breakout session, then you could, you can talk to those people on certain topics. So they will have certain topics where they have sort of five minutes to say something about it. And then you talk in a small group. And that's part of why we're doing that is because some people are just more comfortable in small groups and we'll get, we're hoping to create better discussions that way. Okay, so people can head to OutspokenSummit.com, get all of the information we just talked about is all up there. And to register, you can go to OutspokenSummit.com as well. Again, November 15th to 17th at Arizona State University. And so once they register, then Sarah, do you have any tips for like lodging? Where should people be looking for where they stay during this? Oh, yeah, great question. So we have a hotel where we have a group booking, whatever it is, a discounted booking. And it's called The Graduate. And it's actually right across the street from the venue at AS, the main venue at ASU. So people can like through the website, you can find the links to all of that and you can book your your hotel room right in the block. Well, sounds like a great time. We're looking forward to that. Again, OutspokenSummit.com and that early bird pricing ends July 31st. So don't delay if you want the best deal. Um, Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. And we do actually have an interview for you this week, and it's one I'm very excited about. Today, we are joined by Caroline Gleick. Caroline is a professional skier and ski mountaineer. And I first heard about her in 2017 when she became the first woman and fourth person to ski all 90 of the steep and challenging ski descents in Utah's Wasatch Mountains. The lines are collectively referred to as the shooting gallery and are all well chronicled in a book by the same name. So while completing a lifetime project like the shooting gallery lines might satisfy some people, it was just the beginning for Caroline. Since 2017, Caroline has climbed and skied some of the world's highest peaks, including her first summit of Mount Everest earlier this year. We talked to Caroline about what it was like to stand on top of the world, how she feels about the risks and costs of big alpine expeditions, and why she wants to see more women reaching the summit of the world's physical and professional peaks. We'll have all of that and more from Caroline right after the break. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride, and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including Kicker Smart Trainers, Element Bike Computers, and Ticker Heart Rate Monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. Hi, Caroline. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, how's it going? We're super excited to have you here today, and we want to start off with a congratulations on summoning Mount Everest. I think, you know, it was just a little over a month ago on May 24th that you stood on the highest point on the planet, 29,029 feet. What did that feel like? 
to be honest, it was real stressful. <laughs> um, getting to the summit, it's, uh, I mean, it was like 7 a.m. on a day that the winds were, were forecasted to really increase around noon. So we just had a long way to go to get back down um, off the ridge and out of the death zone. And I was pretty stressed out at the summit because I was just worried about how long it would take me to get down with my, with my knee injury. And yeah, it was, um, it was pretty stressful the whole trip. <laughs> so I, there was a moment of joy, but there's also a lot of stress. I have to say, I appreciate that, <laughs> that response, because I think, you know, also showing that you were a little bit stressed out at the summit probably meant that you had your wits about you and you were probably doing pretty good at the summit, but you called your Everest expedition the climb for equality. And according to the Himalayan database, there have been just under 10,000 summits on Everest all time by close to 5,000 unique climbers. And then of those 5,000 climbers, around 500 of them have been women. So we're talking historically about 10% of climbers on Everest are women. Why do you think it's important to see more women on the world's highest mountains? Well, I mean, for one, there's a big selfish reason there is that I just have more fun when I'm hanging out with women at base camp and advanced base camp. And when you're on these trips, it takes a really long time. Like our Everest trip took 40 days. So, I mean, the first reason is purely selfish. And then I just think that the other reason is it's pretty consistent across other industries, too, when you look at who's at the top, whether it's of mountains or in leadership positions for businesses or CEOs, you still see there's a real absence of women. And so I just think it's a good analogy for other areas in the world where we need to see more more female leadership. And this hashtag, this climb for equality hashtag, how do you want people or how have you been using it? And how do you want people to use that to kind of raise awareness? Yeah, I mean, like I have a social media kit that has an implicit bias disruptor training. It's like a two page training thing. So, I mean, I would love for people to read that if they feel inclined to seek out more knowledge about it. But on the other hand, I really just want more people to get excited about advocating for gender equality because it's a it can be a really difficult topic to talk about. And so I think just like the subtle hashtag, maybe it gets people thinking about what they can do to be allies for gender equality and for other causes in a subtle and a fun way. So, yeah, I mean, to just keep using the hashtag and to seek out more information about how they can advocate for gender equality. So that means we can use it even if we're climbing a big hill on our bikes and not necessarily climbing Mount Everest. Totally. And my fiance, Rob, like a big part of it too, was like, what are, what is men's role in this and how can men be allies and advocates for women and support them in leadership? And so Rob, he's doing this ultimate world triathlon and he's doing it as a try for equality. I like the try for equality. That one, I think we could, we can get behind that one, but Going back to Everest, Everest got a ton of media coverage this year, but it wasn't all positive. So climber Nirmal Purja, I think, posted a photo on his Facebook page that went viral and ended up all over social media and even in the New York Times. The photo shows a long line of climbers on their way to the summit on the Nepal side. In between the photo and reports of 11 deaths on the mountain this year, there's been a lot of discussion about overcrowding. And so we understand you were not in that line and you actually climbed from the Tibet side, which offers fewer permits and thus fewer people. But did Everest feel crowded to you? 
So, I mean, the thing is, is that overall there were seven more permits this year given out than last year. If you look at the numbers, at least that's what the preliminary data shows. And um, I mean, Everest, it's like the whole world comes together for this short time in the season to climb. And so I was a little worried about overcrowding, but what really made it problematic this year was the weather. And the weather window was really, really narrow. And on our side, there were like two weather days, really, three, th three weather days that people could climb. And so everyone ended up going at the same time. So no, like at the advanced base camp and base and base camp, it didn't feel crowded up higher on the mountain. When all the teams decided to move at the same time, it felt a little bit crowded, but I mean, it's really to be expected with the weather window and with just um, how, I mean, it's just the best time of year to climb it. And so there's like the spring window and then there's a window post monsoon, but most teams like 99% of people go in the spring. So I definitely think it's a mountain that can handle a lot of people on a normal weather year, but this year was a really abnormal year for weather. And how do you think that that affects like the trash on Everest? Was it as bad as reported? And did you even really like, you know, think that it was an issue as much as, you know, I realized the game of telephone from Everest back to the, the media in the United States can get a little wacky. So, you know, from your perspective, what was that like? So at base camp where we spent a lot of time, there was like hardly any trash. And we tried to do a trash pickup and we spent a couple hours and we barely filled a half bag. So base camp was really clean. And on the Tibet side, you can actually drive to base camp versus the Nepal side. It's a, you know, a week or two, a week long trek. And then advanced base camp had more trash. Um, there weren't like huge piles of trash, but there were definitely some like piece, you know, there were some pieces of debris around. And then a lot of that trash was like frozen into the ice and rocks. So it's not easy to retrieve. It's not like you can just pick it up and you'd have to like, like chop it out of the ice in some cases. And then at the higher camp, North Coal camp was really clean. Camp two and camp three are a little bit more polluted and it's mostly old tents, like tents that have broken. And so it's like tent poles and tent fabric is what I saw. So on the North side, it's not as bad. And the Chinese, because it hasn't been used as heavily historically, but um, there's definitely some places where people can improve. And you mentioned this this really narrow weather window and of only three or, you know, two or three days that you could make that final push for the summit. And I believe your team, you waited an extra day to make that yeah. to make that summit attempt because of the crowds. And and so when you made that decision, did you ever worry that waiting a day might mean you miss the good weather window and therefore miss your chance to reach the summit? Absolutely. Which is why I was so stressed out on the summit is because like the weather, there was a reason why like 90% of teams went the day they did because our weather forecast was like real questionable and it was supposed to, and the problem on Everest, it's not like snow or usually it's wind and the wind, it will like knock you over. I mean, it is so, it's like a roaring freight train. It's like <gasps> deafening and it's really hard just to stand up when the winds pick up on Everest. And so we, I was really, really worried. And we, so what we did is we spent an extra day and night at camp two at 25,000 feet. 
And at that time, we just seeing all the other teams go and just sitting there in our tent on a really low flow of oxygen to save our resources. It was super hard to like think that was a good decision, but in retrospect, it was absolutely the, the right call. And I'm glad we did it that way. And so when you're at these high altitudes and you are making these life and death decisions about waiting it or going and all of that stuff, while your physical and mental abilities are diminished by that lack of oxygen, do you do specific training or planning to help mitigate risk and avoid a bad decision once you're up at elevation? I mean, I think that that's a really important thing. A lot of climbers, I mean, we had previously climbed and skied another 8,000 meter peak, Choyu, in September. And I feel that was a really important stepping stone to get to Everest. Um, we'd also climbed a lot of other 6,000 and uh, my fiance climbed a 7,000 meter peak to sort of prepare and to like, you know, continue to push our bodies at those higher altitudes because yeah, your brain is functioning at like, and I've done a lot of other, you know, mountaineering where I've been really depleted and really exhausted. And I felt like I could make good decisions in that state. And so I think a hundred percent, it's probably like racing an Ironman where you're probably pretty delirious at the end. And so you want to have maybe practice in that state of delirium before race day. I don't know if it's the same for Ironman, but I'm sure you feel similar, just like you're pretty depleted, you're out of it. And so we, so we'd done the 8,000 meter peak Choyu. We climbed and skied that in September. And then before the expedition, we spent two months sleeping in a hypoxico altitude training tent. And we were sleeping up to 17,000 feet before we left our home in Utah. And Caroline, you say we a lot in some of these because you do a lot of your climbing with your fiance. And so how does that dynamic work? Because I would probably argue, I think you have maybe the stronger climbing resume, but do you guys like make a plan before you're doing something like Everest about, are you doing it, you know, all for one and one for all, or is it, you know, at a certain point, it's every woman, man for themselves type of thing. Right. I mean, that's a good question. Cause I, when I got, I got really sick with high, with the early stages of high altitude pulmonary edema on Choyu. And I really thought I was going to have to go home. I was so sick and all I wanted to do was go home. And I mean, it was, my fiance came back down to base camp with me, Rob. And, and at that point I was like, you know, I really don't want you to go up without me. But I, in that case, like I would want him to, if I were like had a safe exit to get back home and I could feel like I could manage that transport by myself, I would absolutely want him to go back up and summit. Like we train so hard for these trips and we, they're really expensive trips. Like they're not our normal kind of climbing trips and so, or ski trips. So I would a hundred percent want him to summit in that case. However, if it were something where we were like really high up on the mountain and I were sick at a tent, I would not want him to leave me in that case. Cause you see, you read stories about that happening and it usually doesn't end well for the person who's left behind in the tent. And so if it were like up higher and we were really sick, I would want, I would probably, I think that it's good to stay in a team if, if you have a problem up high. And you mentioned Choyu, which is the sixth highest mountain in the world that you climbed last September, where you experienced high altitude pulmonary edema, um, fluid in your lungs. And did you have any issues similar to that on Everest? So when we got to Everest, when we got to base camp, I got sick and I thought it was maybe hape, but it was like some other kind of cold flu sickness that I think I picked up when I was traveling. And I'm normally like a pretty healthy person. So I'm like frustrated that I always get sick on these trips to the Himalayas. 
like the biggest trips of my life. But it, the key is to get sick at the beginning of the trip so you can recover by the end. And so I got some sort of flu and I was just floored and laying in the tent for four days. And I ended up recovering and feeling great by the second half of the trip, which is when it was time to go for the summit. But no, I was really worried about getting hape again or having other problems related to altitude, but this trip was okay. Caroline, one of the major barriers to entry that might deter women or really anyone, I guess, from going after big mountain climbs is, like you've said, how much they cost. So you climbed with Alpenglow Expeditions, which is a reputable group out of the Lake Tahoe area, and their advertised rate for the trip is $85,000 per person. So if a woman or a girl came up to you and said, I know I'm physically capable, I've done my training, I want to climb Everest, I want to be one more woman on the highest peaks, but I don't have the money and I don't have the sponsors, I'm afraid of the cost, what would you say to that woman? So this is a really uncomfortable topic to talk about because it's like such a large sum of money that it took me a while to even like wrap my head around raising the money to climb. I mean, it's crazy how expensive it's got. However, it was like a thing for me where I had to really coach myself and be like, you're worth raising this money. And like, you need to go out and start asking people for money. I mean, it might take a couple, like, I wish I would have had more time. Like I was not able to fundraise the full amount and I had to pay for some of it out of pocket. And it's something I couldn't have done even six years ago. Like I just didn't have the savings that I could have like footed the extra part of the bill. But I would just say like, you know, set the fundraising goal and that I would probably recommend crowdsourcing it and doing a GoFundMe or doing a series of GoFundMes to raise it in increments and to just really like go out and command that, uh, like, you know, have the presence and realize that you're worth it. And so it was a really hard, it was really hard mentally for me to wrap my head around that and to get comfortable asking people for money. And like one of my future goals is to maybe run for political office. So I had to embrace it as like a sort of training exercise for what it would be like to fundraise for like an election campaign. And I believe the day after you paid your final deposit for your trip, you tore your ACL in a skiing accident. So we know your story has a happy ending and you were still able to make the trip and reach the summit. But did you ever think it might not happen? I mean, in that moment when I fell and I was taking this violent fall down a couple hundred feet and I heard the pop in my knee, I just, I mean, it didn't hurt as much physically as it did mentally. And I was just completely devastated because I felt like my chances of climbing Everest were slim to none, like none at that point. And I was so worried that I was going to have to repay my sponsors and I was going to, and, and we had just bought a home and I was going to like lose my house and go into bankruptcy. Like I was so, so worried when it happened. And then like meeting with the first sports med doctor who was like, yeah, you still might be able to climb with like a hinge brace. And I was like, Whoa, my mind is blown. Like if that's really a possibility, I'm going to do everything in my power to make that a reality because after you pay that amount, unless you have trip insurance, it's like non-refundable. So what kind of training did you do in between? Did you do any training or like, were you able, I mean, were you just carrying fitness you had before that fall into Everest? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that point, like all my energy was going to getting the swelling down in my knee, like in the first couple of weeks, because with the the knees, it was so swollen. Like it was huge. I could hardly bend it. And I was walking on crutches. 
six weeks before I'm supposed to leave to climb Everest. And so, yeah, the first couple of weeks were just like to get the swelling down. And then it was like working on proprioception and balance with my PT and doing some crazy things on the Pilates machine. And then it was like outside slowly building up to be able to do longer and longer hikes so that I just would like, I had to, I felt like I was starting at zero. Like the first hike I went on, I could barely hike for a mile. And then the next one was like three miles. And then I did a five mile and then eight mile and then 13 miles. And that was the longest hike I did before I left for Everest. Do you do any sort of like, especially during that time, were you working with a sports psychologist or anything like that? Cause I imagine, you know, even for someone like you at the highest level of the sport, it's like pretty hard to be like, okay, I'm hiking three miles. Surely I'm going to be fine (laughs) on Everest. Right. Like how's the mental side of that? Well, like the good part was, is that our expedition leader for Alpenglow, he tore his ACL in 2013 and he was able to summit without an ACL and get surgery when he got home. And so just, and then also our high altitude doctor, she went to the South side of Everest and climbed up to camp two with a torn ACL. So like on our team, I had, I was really lucky because a lot of expedition companies and guides and people would be like, you're done. You're off the team. Go home, stay home. Like, (laughs) So I was really lucky that our expedition leadership and especially our high altitude doctor were on board with this crazy plan to go up there with a torn ACL. And it was really hard at first, like to get my balance back and to like, remember how to use my leg without an ACL is sort of like retraining my neurology. But I didn't have a sports psychologist. I had an amazing positive PT who was like basically a sports psychologist too, in a lot of ways. And she was so positive and she really helped me just like get that balance back. So I was lucky to have a good team of people. And I think you were originally planning to ski down Everest and was that change of plans, but you you ultimately did not. So was that change of plans because of the ACL injury? So this was one of the lowest snow years on Everest and it was like really, really icy. And the route I wanted to ski I've seen photos of it where it has a lot more snow on it. And so it was really, there's a lot of blue ice, really steep exposed blue ice. And it was partly that, and it was partly the time, it was partly the conditions, it was partly my ACL, and it was partly the clouds, I mean, the crowds and the short weather window. So when we were leaving, like, we didn't have a chance to go up the mountain sooner. And if I would have had a chance to go up and cash my skis higher up, it would have been a lot easier when we left for summit day to get excited about bringing my skis. But because we didn't have that weather window, I had like five days of food and clothes, plus skis, plus ski boots on my back. And it was partly just the short weather window and the stress of the crowds. And yeah, the, I, the ACL was definitely like partially a factor too. Can you explain just, for listeners oh. and myself, to be honest, like the concept of skiing down Everest? Because to be honest, like I had never even heard that people would consider doing this. So how, you know, it sounds like you would really be planning to ski down from like one of the the tiers of the of the camps. Yeah. So on the north side above Camp 2, it's all rock. Unless you were to ski down a different route, there's a couple of other routes that go off the summit, but they were not in good condition this year. So um, I would ski from Camp 2 to Advanced Base Camp through the North Coal. So there's like a couple of, there's like a ridge of snow, a tongue of snow that goes down. And then there's a really steep icefall section that you can ski through the North Coal. 
you mentioned the low snow year, and I believe there was another New York Times article that talked about melting ice and decreased snow lines on Everest. I think one of the more gruesome results of less snow is more exposed bodies of climbers who have died on the mountain. So you mentioned your your political activism, and a lot of that is against climate change. And I think, in fact, you were in Washington, D.C. earlier this week or last week. So how has your time in the mountains influenced your desire to make change in society? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely like, I mean, I'm going to preface this by saying that as a climate activist, it's like I get a lot of pushback for going to the Himalayas and and climbing and then and then being a climate change activist. But I would say like to people that are worried that they're not perfect enough to speak up about climate, that there's no perfect activist. And so it's much better for people to live their lives with fulfillment and then to show up at, you know, to advocate for large scale systemic change, even if you're not a perfect activist, like going to the Himalayas doesn't make you like, it doesn't disclude you from being, from being able to be an activist. Um, I just get a lot of like personal criticism for that. And I think it's a way to misdirect the conversation. So um, I guess just like seeing the changes in those large scale glaciers in the Himalayas that millions of people depend on for their for their drinking water, it really it really inspires you to like speak up and share those stories with our policymakers because um, and to share some of the photos and images too because the glaciers in the Himalayas are melting really quickly, and it's definitely something that we need to show the world and hopefully inspire people to fight for their protection. And Caroline, ski mountaineering also has an element of environmental impact because of avalanches. It's not unheard of to cause an avalanche while you're doing this. And you have always tried to hold uphold a standard of transparency with your old own reporting of the impact that your trips have on the mountains. So, but why do you think that this is important? And why do you think that sometimes others struggle with the same transparency? I mean, I think when you start to speak about these things, you really make yourself vulnerable to a lot of criticism and personal attacks. And I mean, when you make yourself vulnerable and you share a lot of things with the world, I mean, if you were to never speak up about climate change, you probably wouldn't get attacked as being a hypocrite or like a polluter or whatever. So I think it's just like when you start to try to address these issues, you also open yourself up. And I think it's become more and more pervasive in our culture now and on social media. And it's just an unfortunate side effect of the times we live in. And the mission of the Iron Women podcast is to provide more exposure to female athletes and hopefully in that process be providing role models for young girls beginning in sport. I know that you spent a lot of time skiing with your family and your brothers growing up. But what about female ski racing idols? Did you have anyone that kind of helped helped you create these dreams? Oh, my gosh. When I was growing up I, as a kid in Minnesota, I just remember I fell in love watching Peekaboo Street in the Lillehammer Olympics. And she was like my idol when I was a kid. Like, I wanted to be Peekaboo Street so bad. And it's really funny because I live like close. Like now I live in Park City. And yeah, I've never I haven't met her, but I would love to meet her sometime. <laughs> she was like a huge hero for me. I think I actually had a poster of Peekaboo Street on my wall at home, which is funny because I grew up in Maryland and have literally only skied 
like twice in my 34 years to date. So she was definitely, uh-huh. I think, instrumental for a lot of us growing up as athletes. But also as you grew up, I believe your parents didn't really like funnel you into a ski racing development team or make your life all about skiing to help you get to the top. You grew up in Minnesota and you didn't move to the mountains of Utah until you were 15 years old, but you still found a way to make all the skiing happen, pursuing your racing career as you grew up and even finding a way to balance that while still going to college. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and like looking back, you know, were there ever times when you wish like you had been kind of, you know, further developed at a, at a younger age? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I first moved to Utah when I was 15, uh, I moved in the middle of high school and I tried to join the ski racing program at my school. And they're like, you're too old. And I was just devastated because like by that time, all my peers who were ski racing were like on the Olympic track and they were like on the U.S. ski team. And I was so devastated because it was always my dream to become a professional skier. And, um, you know, for those few years, those like teenage years, I was definitely super resentful to my parents and my family for not pushing me and helping me like get a start in the sport. Like I always knew that this is what I wanted to do. So I didn't really get to start skiing very often until I was 18. And I actually just only did big mountain competitions and I did a couple skier across. But I didn't really do very many races because I didn't come from that background. I didn't have the training or the equipment. And so I kind of forged a path for myself through film and photography and writing to create a path as a as a sponsored athlete. And the first like decade really of my career, it was really focused on shooting photos and getting into magazines and filming different video things. And then it was only once I had like spent a lot of time and taken some AVI courses that I felt more confident venturing out into the backcountry. And so while I was resentful to my parents for a while, there's also a point where it kind of shifted where I realized as an adult, in order to sustain a career as a professional athlete, you have to have like a burning hunger. You have to have like such a drive and you have to be incredibly motivated and also be willing to hear no and to get rejected a lot. And so in a way it was good because I didn't like, because I had to like build it all myself. I think it gave me more of a drive than if I had been fed into that program. And then I also think it was good to start out without too many injuries because a lot of the people who start when they're really young, they end up with a lot of injuries by the time they reach adulthood and they get kind of burnt out on being injured. I love the finding of the silver lining, Uh, but I want to ask a little bit about the equipment that you need for for skiing and for ski mountaineering because it is kind of a big barrier is to have you know, good equipment because it is life and death. And that's something similar to what we have in triathlon. So do you have any suggestions for kind of getting into skiing if you're on a budget? Yeah. I mean, the cool thing now is something I'm so psyched to see is that there's so many good used gear programs and there's good resources on eBay and like Patagonia has worn wear where you can buy used clothes on their, I think they have a website set up for that. And so I would say like a hundred percent, I mean, it can be really hard and it takes some trial and error to find the right, especially if you're really like, I'm really petite. I'm like five one. So it took a lot of trial and error and it took like years, seasons of like being on the wrong skis and wrong bindings where I was like lugging this super heavy setup up the mountain and my hip flexors are still recovering. But I think it takes some trial and error, but like definitely use gear or ski swaps or um, it's encouraging to see that there's a lot more opportunities to buy and sell used gear. And Caroline, you're starting so, the yeah. 
for it was marked oh. not only by solid results, but also because you were making a name for yourself in ski modeling, actually. And so this involves some technical and difficult skiing, but also being able to make it look good for the pictures and the film to come of it. So did this add more stress to the sport for you, or did you enjoy being able to use what you were good at and also making it look good? Yeah, I mean, it's like really just a f- uh, like the difference between like calling yourself a ski model and a professional skier. It's like a lot of male skiers do the same things. And I think for women, it just gets a negative stigma. Like I would often be on shoots with a lot of really high profile male skiers and we'd be doing really similar things and getting published in similar places. But for some reason, when you're a girl, it gets like a really negative stigma and like, oh, she's just a pretty face or her smile pays the bills or it's always like a way to sort of undermine a woman's accomplishment or talent. And so, I mean, that was like the path that I saw as a way to make a career for myself without having a racing background. And I like, I really enjoyed that time because working with photographers and videographers and looking at the video playback of my turns and getting feedback in real time, like that was like my coaching that I could get for free. Like I didn't have to pay for it. And so I like loved all those hours, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of hours I spent outside and working on those shoots. And, you know, it's just really gratifying to be able to have like a tangible thing at the end of the day, like these photos, they mean, they mean a lot to me. And eventually you did move from, from ski modeling into ski mountaineering. And you mentioned taking some avalanche classes that helped you get more comfortable in the backcountry. but this, you know, this does come with a whole new element of skill that's needed and risk that's involved. So how did you go from being a ski model um, to, you know, skiing some of the highest mountains in the world? Yeah, I mean, it was always my goal and my trajectory. And like inside, it's what I knew I wanted to do. But my half brother was killed in an avalanche when I was 15. And so I was acutely aware of the dangers and the risks of the mountains. And I felt like I needed to put in a lot of time taking AVI courses, taking rock rescue. I learned how to ice climb, learned how to rock climb, and I took wilderness medicine training because, and I think this is something that women do. Some, like in retrospect, I look back and I'm like, maybe I was overprepared. Like maybe I didn't need to put in all these steps and I could have done it sooner. However, I mean, with mountaineering, I lost another close friend in an avalanche four years ago. So four years ago, one of my best friends was killed in an avalanche. And yeah, I just wanted to be sure I could be safe and take care of myself in the mountains. And and if there was a problem that I knew what I needed to do to rescue myself or someone else. So it was a long path and a long trajectory because I just wanted to feel really confident going out there. And in 2017, you became the first woman and the fourth person to ski all 90 lines in Utah's Wasatch Mountains. And these are outlined in the guidebook to the Wasatch by Andrew McLean called The Shooting Gallery. This is a project that spanned four years to complete. I think a lot of people struggle with motivation for one season of triathlon racing sometimes. So what do you think kept you going through the years to tackle this? And was there a time when you made a conscious decision to like go after this kind of on a record type of pace or like, were you kind of planning to do it, you know, just over the span of a decade or a lifetime, like other people do it. And then that changed at some point. 
Yeah. I mean, so when I started working on the book, I just wanted to ski like the major classics. And I never thought I would ski all the lines when I first kind of like started ticking away. But after the first season, I was just really hooked on sort of the adventure aspect of heading out and trying to find these places. And and it really just gave me a nice framework for I'm sure like triathlon racing does too. Like you have your races. It's like a puzzle to figure out how you're going to get all the pieces of the puzzle to fit together. And it became like that for me. And it became just like the, you know, the first season or two, it was like something that I just did in between other trips and other projects. And it wasn't like my sole focus, but by the last year it was like, okay, I'm going to finish this thing. And luckily it was a really good snow year. So we had enough snowfall for me to do that because otherwise it would have taken another year or two, but it was uh, just like slowly ticking away at those incremental goals and just always having like I kind of miss it now. <laughs> I kind of want to go back and start doing it again because it was really wonderful to have just like a go to guidebook for when I was wondering, like, what should I do today? And Caroline, you're very active on social media and we'd encourage all of our listeners to follow you on Twitter and Instagram because you do post some really great content. But with all the opportunities that social media brings, it does have a few downsides and you've been a target of cyberbullying during your career. It sounds like, you know, talking to you that you have pretty thick skin, but are there any other tactics you use to drown out the haters? Oh, I mean, I, I don't really have thick skin. I'm super sensitive. And those things that people have said, I had this like crazy case with this guy who made up over 20 different accounts to, to bully me on social media. And then he left a voicemail that was really, really damaging. And yeah, he called me and it was just a horrible, it was a really, you know, low point in my life. And it was really hard to kind of overcome that voice in my ear. And I don't know that I fully have overcome it. Like it still comes up sometimes and it still triggers me. And I guess it's like the goal of those people. And I think that women are sometimes, um, like I know male athletes go through this too, but I do think that sometimes women receive it more often or with like greater intensity or than, than male athletes. But I guess, um, I would just say that what I learned is that the goal of those people is to silence women's voices. And it's so important to not let that happen because there's so many things over the years that I've not spoken up about that I've wanted to write about, but I felt like I couldn't because I knew I was going to get pushback. And so I guess what I learned is like, I have to keep speaking up despite the negativity and the naysayers and to keep showing up and doing my thing. And we mentioned your pre-Everest ACL tear. And since returning home to Utah, you have had surgery to repair it. So in a matter of weeks, you went from quite literally standing on top of the world to (laughs) sitting in bed and recovering from major (laughs) surgery. So I'm imagining that post-climb blues is a thing, kind of similar to people find like post-race blues is a thing. And mm-hmm. let alone when you add in a surgery and a recovery time. So how do you handle this kind of thing when you're not able to be outside in the mountains doing the things that you love? Well, this year I've been really lucky because I have wedding planning to keep me <laughs> occupied. And so um, I w- I'm really grateful I have that because it's, it's just like there's so many phone calls and emails and like little things to do. And it's kept me like motivated and occupied. And then I'm getting ready to crew my fiance as he attempts to swim the English Channel. And so there's been a lot of different moving pieces for that. And um, this year, you know, it's kind of weird because last year when I went to Choyu and I spent a month climbing and skiing, there. And when I got home, I was so depressed. And like the post, it was like 
the worst depression. I was so sad and I just like couldn't get myself together. Um, but this year it's been a lot easier. I think partly because I knew what to expect. Like I knew I'd have a big letdown. And then the other part was that spending a week on the couch, just binge watching Netflix. It was actually really good for my recovery from, from Everest too. And I think it's so like, I'm sure a lot of triathletes are also the kind of people who have a hard time sitting still and sometimes if you don't take that forced rest time, like an injury or something else will kind of force you into it. And so it was really good to just take that week and just lay on the couch and have Rob take care of me and do very little. I think it helped me get my energy back so that I didn't feel as, quite as much of a, you know, the post, the post expedition blues. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for chatting with us. We love hearing, you know, learning more about Everest and we'll be definitely be using those hashtag climb for equality and hashtag try for equality as we are on our own expeditions in the next couple months. And, and good luck to you with your ACL recovery and crewing for quite the, quite the try you have coming up. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome to chat with you today. Haley, do you know what our most popular Iron Women episode has been so far? I do, Alyssa, because you know I love the numbers, and it goes back to fall of 2017 when we interviewed exercise physiologist Stacey Sims. You are right. And do you know what Stacey Sims has been up to these days? I've heard she's working with Noon Hydration to help formulate some products that have the female endurance athlete in mind. Noon Hydration products have clean quality ingredients and are also non-GMO project verified, which means top quality ingredients for your body and the planet. Noon Hydration offers a range of hydration products for all your workout and recovery needs. My personal favorite is Noon Sport Fruit Punch flavor. What's yours, Alyssa? I like the Noon Sport in the grape flavor and our listeners can go to noonlife.com and shop with a 30% off code of Iron Women to find out their favorite flavor. And don't forget to let us know. That's noonlife.com with the code Iron Women for 30% off. So Alyssa, after listening to Caroline, is Everest on your bucket list? I have to say, Haley, that after we talked to her and I had some workouts, Everest was definitely like on my mind. And I was like, man, is this on my mind? Because like, I need to do it. Or cause like, I want to know more about it or like what? So once I get something in my head, I start to investigate and I'm kind of, I'm still terrified of Everest. So the don't worry, mom, I'm not planning on climbing Everest, but I did start to think more about like mountains and mountains. Like I would like that are like really high <laughs> that I would like to like climb and do that. So one that I have always been curious about is Kilimanjaro. And so I started, I did start after Caroline's interview, looking into climbing that and what it would take and looking into that. So I know Michelle Vesterby actually climbed that. We had a Facebook live interview with her back um, a while ago where she talked a little bit about that. And I'm going to see her in Copenhagen in a few weeks. So I'm going to ask her about that. But if any of our listeners have any tips for Kilimanjaro, if anyone's been, I definitely am curious, like what guide services you used and one of my reservations is like the crowding. Like I like to do things kind of not in crowds. So I'd like to hear anyone's educated opinions on that if, if anyone has been. So, but either way, I, Haley, maybe when I'm riding in Lake Placid this weekend, I'll take some pics and use hashtag climb for equality because I'll be doing a lot of climbing up there. That is a good, um, a good plan. I think Caroline made that very clear that we can all use the hashtags climb for equality and hashtag try for equality in 
any type of adventure, whether it's, you know, working to get to the highest mountaintop or just doing something that we are aware that there should be more gender equality and we want to just be aware of that and work toward, you know, more inclusivity across all of our endeavors. So big thanks to Caroline for coming on the show. And Haley, thank you. I think you put Caroline on our radar too. So thank you for seeing her and knowing she would be great for Iron Women. And as always, if you are inspired or just thankful for the work that we are putting out and the content we are giving you, please head to our Patreon page. It is patreon.com forward slash live feisty. And you can become a member of our community, become a Patreon and donate money every month to help us keep producing this content and giving you great podcasts every week and the newsletter and the if we were writing podcast there's so much going and on and the facebook live which is also happening in canada whistler this weekend with ashley and jeff yeah definitely everyone tune into that friday saturday all the interviews with the pro women racing in whistler on the iron women facebook page live coverage on sunday of that what is going to be a fantastic race. All the climbing there. Hashtag climb for equality in uh, in Whistler because that is one hilly course. So thank you again to everyone who's tuning into all of our all of our media offerings. And Alyssa, have a great week. Bye, Haley. Happy birthday. Have so much fun. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women Podcast is a live feisty media production. We want to thank our sponsors and partners Noon Hydration, Wahoo Fitness, Zelios, Fen Coffee, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen.